If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're going to begin in a moment in verse 16. I've never preached this passage on Easter Sunday before, but I want to share it with you this morning. Acts 17, we'll start in a moment in that 16th verse. Back in my seminary days, I had a friend who went on a mission trip to Thailand. While he was there, he met a Buddhist monk. That Buddhist monk offered to give him a tour of Bangkok on his free day. And of course, this Buddhist monk, he had never heard the name of Jesus, much less the story of Jesus. But during that day, As they were riding around town, my friend began to tell him that story. And when they got to the resurrection, when he told his Buddhist tour guide that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he said that man slammed on his brakes in the middle of the road, cars driving by, and he turned to him and he said, If this is true, if this man Jesus died and rose again to never die again, that means he has the right to make any claim on my life. Now, I don't know if that man ever became a Christian, but I can tell you in that moment, he got the point. If Jesus died on the cross and rose again, this is more than a story. This changes everything, what we believe and how we live and what is true and what is false, how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us. And we are here today because we do believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, died on a cross, and on the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven, and even now is at the right hand of the Father. I wonder how many of you here, if anyone's ever had the opportunity to tell the Easter story to someone who was hearing it for the very first time. They didn't even know that Jesus rose from the grave. Most of you here on Easter Sunday, you probably know the story. You probably know how it ends. But could you just imagine what it would be like to preach to a congregation full of people who had never heard it and who did not even know about the resurrection? Well, that's exactly what we see in our Scripture this morning. In Acts chapter 17... The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He was literally kicked out of the last two towns where he preached. And so he comes to Athens, which was at that time the intellectual capital of the world. And so what did Paul do there? He preached the gospel. Now he preached it a little bit differently than he did at other places, but it's the same message about the same Savior, the same cross, and the same empty tomb. 
And as we read this story about Paul preaching the Easter story in Athens, there are four major implications that I want us to see uh, that will show us uh, how the resurrection of Jesus Christ applies to our lives today. First of all, the resurrection means freedom from a meaningless life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means freedom from a meaningless life. Look at verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, Athens was a city that was full of amazing architecture and incredible buildings, beautiful art, but Paul was not impressed by any of these things. Verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked. He felt this heavy burden within him when he looked around and saw a city that was full of idols. One historian recorded that in the city of Athens, in that time, in the first century, there were about 10,000 residents, but there were 30,000 idols. They had three idols for every single person. And Paul was broken hearted when he looked around and he saw all of these people who were worshiping dead idols instead of a living Savior. Now, we see the same thing happening around us today. There are people who serve all kinds of different idols. Of course, here in South Florida, there are a lot of people who worship literal idols. Some people call them saints. Let's be honest, they're idols. There are others who worship idols figuratively. There are some who worship the idols of money or sex or power or fame. One of the reformers famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. But whatever kind of idol a man serves, it's powerless, it's meaningless, it cannot help you, it cannot save you. And I wonder as I read this, if our hearts are provoked just like Paul's when we see all of the idolatry that is around us today. Paul saw their idolatry and then he encountered some of their philosophers. Look at verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? By the way, in case you didn't know, that's not exactly a compliment. Most preachers don't like being called babblers, just pointing that out. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, most of the people who heard Paul preach this famous sermon in Acts chapter 17, they were parts of two different groups. You had the Epicureans, and their chief goal in life was to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. They said, this life is all there is, so enjoy it while you can. They said, if it feels good, do it. They said, eat, drink, and be merry. If they were here today, their motto would be YOLO. You only live once. 
We have plenty of modern-day Epicureans all around us. But then the Bible says there was another group of philosophers in Paul's audience that day. These were the Stoics, and they said, mind over matter. In other words, this life is tough. This life is full of hardship and suffering, but if you mentally prepare yourself and if you tough it out, you can get by. Their motto was, life is hard and then you die. You ever met anybody like that? So you had the Epicureans and you had the Stoics. The first group was optimist, the second group was pessimist, but both Groups were hopeless. They were hopeless because they thought that this life is as good as it gets. They had no hope whatsoever beyond the grave. And so what does Paul do? Look again at those last four words of verse 18. Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Say those last four words with me. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. He preached Jesus, the Son of God, who came from heaven to earth, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for the sin of the world. But then Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, Luke says that Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection. And he separates that. He emphasizes that. He says he preached Jesus and the resurrection, meaning that he emphasized the resurrection. He's preaching to a group of idolaters who think that this life is, is all there is and there's nothing more. And to them, he emphasized the empty tomb. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus means that God has something better for us than what this world has to offer. That's why. Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep. When a tree bears the first fruits of the season, you know that means that there is more to come and likewise, when Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, he was the first fruits. That means there's more to come. His resurrection means our resurrection. Jesus rose, and therefore when he returns, we will rise as well. You may be here this morning, and you're like an Epicurean who's just trying to enjoy life while you can. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you're like a Stoic and you're just trying to grin and bear it. But wherever you are, to whichever group you belong, the resurrection frees us from a meaningless life. Now, there's something else we see about the resurrection in this passage. The resurrection also means that we can know God personally. The resurrection means we can know God personally. These philosophers decided that they wanted to hear more about this Jesus. So they invited Paul to this place called the Areopagus, which was also called Mars Hill. It is a hill in Athens where the people would gather to hear lectures and debates. 
And you can still go there to this day. These very well may have been the steps that the Apostle Paul walked in order to go up to this uh, plateau, this hill, what is left of it, and there on that place he preached. This was the very same place, by the way, where Socrates taught Plato. This was the very same place where Plato taught Aristotle. And Paul goes to that place and he stands right there in front of the most brilliant scholars of his day and he preached his greatest sermon to his hardest audience in the toughest setting. Now, Paul doesn't mention the resurrection until the very end of the sermon, but I want to remind you of something. This entire sermon that we're going to read is like a highway to the empty tomb. This is where Paul is going the entire time. Look at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. They were very religious, by the way, but they were lost. Verse 23, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, even though the people had all of these idols, and even though the people had so many different gods, they knew deep down there had to be something more. They knew in their heart of hearts that the gods that they had created did not create them. They knew that the true God must exist, but they did not know him. They did not know how to know him. So I love what Paul does. He mentions that altar that they had built that said, to the unknown God. And Paul said, I'm here to tell you about that God. I'm here to tell you that you can know him. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can know him personally. Now, I doubt that what we have in Acts 17 is a word-for-word -word manuscript of Paul's sermon. Luke is likely giving us a summary here, but Paul begins the sermon by just talking about God, the fact that God is, and who God is, and what God is like. What makes this God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, different from every other God in this world? Look at verse 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Brothers and sisters, there's something you need to know about verse 24. When Paul said, my God doesn't dwell, my God does not fit in temples made by human hands, beside the Areopagus 
where Paul was preaching, there was a temple to Zeus within sight, and all Paul had to do was turn to his side, and everybody could see it. There it was. And as Paul said, my God doesn't fit in a temple made by human hands, he could have then turned to the other direction, and there was another temple that was also right there within sight, this temple to Athena. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this explicitly, but don't you just know that the apostle Paul pointed to those temples when he said, this God does not fit. He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. You realize what this is, don't you? This is what we call fighting words. Paul's not there to make friends. He's not concerned about stepping on toes. He's taking off the gloves. This is not seven steps to a better life. Look at verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Now, that word for worship in verse 25 means to care for something, to take care of something. So when Paul says, nor is he worshipped by man's hands, Hands. What is Paul saying? Well, the thing about idols is you have to take care of them, don't you? The thing about idols is you have to clean them when they get dirty. The thing about idols is you have to lock them up at night so that no one steals them. The thing about idols is you have to bring them inside when there's a storm, lest a wind knock them over and they break. The thing about idols is they don't take care of you. You have to take care of them. So Paul says, my God is not like them. He's the one who gives life and breath and all things. I love what the singer Mark Harris once said. He said, I don't have a God I can put on a stand or a God that I hold in my hand but I have a God who is holding me. That's what Paul's saying in verse 25. Verse 26 says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Paul describes God as the sovereign creator of the universe. He created us all, he said, from one blood. That blood running in your veins, that blood running in my veins, you know what that is? That's Adam's blood. He said he created us from one blood, but he didn't stop there. Paul said he also made every nation. He determines when those nations rise and fall. He determines how long those nations last. He determines their boundaries. God orchestrates history. He rules and he reigns over the affairs of men. Now, the reason why we can know 
that these things that Paul is telling them about God are true is because the same God who does not fit in a temple made by human hands, he came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and miraculously fit in a virgin's womb. He came and revealed God to us, and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I only say what the Father says. He said, I only do what the Father does. And then after all of that, he backed it up. He backed up everything that he said about himself and everything that he said about God when he rose from the grave. And because Jesus lives, the God who is so big, the universe cannot contain him, will live in your heart if you'll receive him. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can know God and we can know God personally. It also means that we are accountable to God. The resurrection means that we are accountable to God. Look at verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In verse 28, Paul brilliantly quotes their own poets. He knew the culture to whom he was preaching. 500 years before Paul stood on that hill and preached that sermon on the Areopagus, Epimenides had said, there is a God, and he is the reason why we are alive, the reason why we have life. He said he's the reason why we move about, why there's movement in this universe. He's the reason for our being. He's the reason why we exist rather than not existing. And so Paul quotes one of their own poets in order to prove to them that they already knew this. They already knew about the reality of the God of whom Paul preached. And because they knew about God, because they knew in their hearts that God has done all of these things for us, that he gives us life and breath, he's the reason we live and move and have our being. Because God has been so good to us, what is the result of that? Paul says the result of that in verse 27 should be that we seek him. The result should be that we hope in him. He said that we should grope for him. It's the picture of a person in a completely dark room. They cannot see a thing. Maybe spiritually, that's what you feel like this morning. But imagine that person in a completely darkened room and if they will just do this. Paul says, if they'll just reach out, 
they'll find God is there. He's not far from us, Paul said. He wants to be found. The problem is that man does not seek God. He does not reach out in spite of everything that God has done for him. The problem is not that God is far from us. The problem is because of our sin and our rebellion, we have made ourselves far from him. That's the problem. And since we have failed to seek him and to reach out to him, where does that leave us? Skip down to verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That statement is so important. God commands. This is a command. All men everywhere, meaning every man, woman, boy, and girl, he commands all to do what? To repent. What does that mean? It means to turn It means you turn away from your sin and you turn to Christ in faith, believing by faith that He is who He claimed to be, that He is the Son of God, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, believing by faith that He did what He said He would do, that He died and He rose again. Now Paul is getting back to the resurrection. This whole story starts with the resurrection in verse 18, and then it ends with the resurrection in verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all. How? By raising him from the dead. The Athenians had all of these different idols. They had all of these false gods that they served. But there was one thing that none of their gods could do. There was something that none of them even claimed to have the power to do. None of them could raise the dead. None of them could overcome the grave for us. It's like Paul saying, my God can do something your gods cannot do. And by the way, still true today, Buddha's tomb is in Pakistan. You can visit it. He's still there. Muhammad's tomb is in Saudi Arabia. You can visit it. He's still there. Confucius's tomb is in China. You can visit it. He's still there. But at the grave of Jesus, the angel declared, He is not here. He is risen. I want you to follow Paul's logic here. Because God is real, and because we know in our hearts He's real, because God has been good to us, because He is near to us, and because we should seek Him, but we have failed to do so every day single one of us will stand before God and we will give an account one day. And Paul says, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead is the proof that that judgment will take place. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ, yes, means freedom from a meaningless life. It means we can know God personally, but it also means that we are accountable to God. We are accountable to repent. Now, that leads to one final thing I want you to see about the resurrection. The resurrection requires a response. The resurrection requires a response. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Isn't it interesting, when Paul was preaching and he got to the resurrection, it's like they shut him down. That was the end of the sermon. And everybody responded in one of three ways. Verse 32 says that some people mocked him. Isn't it amazing, Paul? Perhaps the greatest missionary in the history of the church. But even Paul, when he preached in Athens in Acts chapter 17, most of the people rejected him. Most of the people mocked him. And yes, it's still true today. The world mocks us for what we believe and for what we're doing. The world says, you're a fool if you believe that a man who died rose again. That's okay. I'd rather be a fool for Jesus than be part of the world's crowd anyway. Some people mocked him, but notice some people responded by delaying and making a decision. They said, we want to hear more. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Maybe you're exploring the claims of Christ. Maybe you're here because a friend invited you. Maybe you're here because you're curious. Maybe you're here this morning and you have questions. If so, guess what? Praise the Lord. We want to help you. We want to pray for you. We want to walk alongside of you. Can I just remember, remind you of this? Eventually, you run out of tomorrows. Eventually, you run out of tomorrows. You cannot delay your response forever. Some of the people mocked, some of the people delayed, but some of the people believed. Now, I love this detail. One of the men who believed was a man named Dionysius. You understand, Dionysius was the name of one of those false gods that they served. This guy was named after that god. This guy, get this, was named after the god of wine, revelry, and theater. I bet he was a hoot to be around, don't you? But this guy, even this guy, even Dionysius, he heard, he believed, and he was saved. And then there was a woman there named Damaris who heard, believed, and she was saved. And Luke says there were others, plural, which means, by definition, at least two more. So at least four People heard and believed, and they were saved. They weren't the majority, but there were some. Maybe there'll be some this morning. You know, some mocked, some delayed, some believed. When Paul preached the resurrection, 
Everyone responded in one of those three ways. And you guess, guess what? Everyone here will respond in one of those three ways. Some will mock. Some will delay. Some will believe. The question is, what is your response going to be? Years ago in Pennsylvania, there was an old highway that they finally got around to fixing. And as they were uh, recovering and repairing that road, they had to shut it down completely for a while. And so a couple miles before that road was closed, they put up a sign, and that sign said, Road Closed Beyond the Cemetery. Road Closed Beyond the Cemetery. Ladies and gentlemen, because Jesus died on the cross and because he rose again, the road to heaven, the road to eternal life is not closed beyond the cemetery. That road is open for anyone and everyone who will believe. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection and for everything that it means to us. We realize this morning, we've just scratched the surface. There's all of this, and there's so much more. But God, we thank you that because the tomb is empty, because Jesus lives, we don't have to live a meaningless life as if this life is all there is, and that's it, there's nothing more. But instead, we can know you, and we can know you personally, because Jesus lives, we can be in a relationship with you. And we know, God, because of everything that you've done for us, we are obligated to seek you and to reach out to you because you are not far from us, your word says. And we must respond somehow, some way. God, I think about how they responded in Acts chapter 17, how some mocked and some delayed and some believed. God, I pray that every person within the sound of my voice right now would respond to this message of the empty tomb by believing, by repentance, turning away from their sin and turning to Christ, placing their faith in him. We ask you, O oh God, to move in these next few moments. Speak to us. Show us how you would have us to respond and help us to carry this good news with us. Our world is so much like that culture in Athens to whom Paul preached. Help us, oh God, to take this same message to the same kind of culture because it's still the power of God unto salvation. It's still the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. I know many of you here, many of you I don't know, but I just want to remind you of what Paul said. He said, God is not far from any of us, which by itself is a miracle. But he said, God is not far from us. 
in Paul's letter to the Romans, he took it a step further and he said, let me tell you how close God is. He said, he's as close as your mouth. You take your mouth with you everywhere you go. Paul said, God's so close, he's as close as your heart. Wherever you go, it's right there beating within your chest. He said, God is as close as your mouth, and he's as close as your heart. Therefore, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, we call that repentance. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because Jesus died and rose again, because he did that for you, that is the only appropriate response to turn from your sin, to turn from your past, to turn from self, and to turn to Christ in repentance, in surrender, in faith, and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I can't help but think some of you here today have never taken that step. Eventually, your tomorrows run out. Eventually, there are no more delays. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Anybody here that would say, yes, pastor, that's me. I need to do that. I need to take that step. If so, right now, I just invite you to take that verse I just quoted, turn it into a prayer, and to pray with me now and say, oh God, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he rose again, and he is Lord of all, and right now he's Lord of my life. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, save me. Amen.